month of December here on the Lean Out podcast. I've been having conversations with the independent journalists that I admire. And today, I'm happy to welcome back to the program a writer and thinker whose work kept me sane at the height of the pandemic. Megan Down is an essayist and author. She's also a former columnist for the LA Times and the host of the Unspeakable podcast and with Sarah Hader, the podcast A Special Place in Hell. I'm thrilled to have Megan Down as my guest for Lean Out's final episode of 2022. Megan, welcome back to Lean Out. Hi, Tara. I'm so glad to be with you. It's so fun to have you on. Uh, We've talked before on the podcast, so you know that your podcast was one of the things that helped keep me sane when I was in the mainstream media still. (laughs) (laughs) So it's wonderful to have you for this series on independent journalism. I want to start with a recent essay of yours that was shared with me quite a bit, actually, called Who Killed Creative Writing? This is about the Hobart literary journal controversy, remarks made by writer Alex Perez about the takeover of the literary industry by white, prudish, woke Brooklyn ladies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to read a line from that that really stood out. I see who shows up to AWP, who wins prizes and judges them, who edits literary journals, who gets tenure-track teaching jobs and fellowships and speaking tours. And I think these are some of the most mediocre people I'm likely to ever encounter. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that dynamic. Yeah, that was a pretty bold sentence or a couple of sentences. Uh, Well, I used to be part of that world. I was a creative writer, quote unquote, whatever that means. I went to an MFA program. Um, All I ever wanted to be was a writer. I thought I was going to be a fiction writer. So, you know, back in the day, I thought that if you were a writer, you were either like a newspaper reporter or a novelist. You know, I didn't really, I I, I didn't discover this sort of essay writing new journalism kind of um, narrative nonfiction until a little later. So I went to an MFA program and I did fiction for a while. And then I stumbled upon this essay form and I was sort of off to the races and I was able to start publishing pretty early. But, you know, I was very much taking creative writing classes and then later teaching them and writing for literary magazines and writing about writing. And my friends were in that world. And, you know, some of them were short story writers and some of them were poets. And it's like, that was very much the scene. And I figured, I always felt like these people were pretty smart and interested and interesting and funny and had a sense of humor about themselves and the world and were insightful and willing to kind of look honestly at the world around them and react to it because that's what writers did, regardless of genre. And then, yeah, um, probably around, you know, 2000. 13, 2014, those are the years that always pop up, right? I started to notice that a lot of the people at those conferences, AWP being the big writing, creative writing conference, it's associated writing programs. So that's like the MFA. It's a giant conference and people go every year. And increasingly, it was just looking like this weird, uh, like Olympic games for competitive identity categories. And it really had very little to do with writing or literature in in any way that had interested me before. So 
that's what that sentence was about. And yeah, it took a lot of years for me to really say it out, say it that bluntly, but I, I'm afraid that's pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's another line here that I think about a lot in this essay. It's not that the literary world arbitrarily decided to cede all its power to white Brooklyn ladies. It's that white Brooklyn ladies are the only ones who can afford to be in the literary world. This is increasingly true of the media, too. Talk to me a bit about that dynamic. Yeah, well, so by the white Brooklyn ladies, so Alex Perez, who the my piece was reacting to an interview by this guy, Alex Perez, who I was not familiar with giving an interview in a magazine I was not familiar with called the Hobart um, about this dynamic. And he's he's talking about white Brooklyn ladies being the agents, the literary agents and the people who work in publishing as sort of the gatekeepers of contemporary publishing. So one of the things that comes up, and this is across the board, whether you're talking about in newsrooms of major media organizations, newspapers, publishing houses, you know, NPR, public radio, whatever it is, like, you know, your world, my world, it's filled with with white people and a lot of white women, especially in book publishing. And there's a kind of tendency to say that there's, you know, people want to say, well, it's because it's so racist or because these people just want to hire their friends. Well, no, it's actually because these jobs are very low paid. And so let's think about it. The people who can afford to work in them are the people who don't need to rely on their salaries in order to live in the most expensive cities in the world, right? Like if you're going to live in New York City and survive on an editor's salary, a book editor, you've got to be already pretty privileged. You have to have grown up in an upper middle class, upper class family. You've got to be married to somebody who works in finance, a lawyer, something like that. Mm. And so people who are first generation to go to college, people who, people of color, people of marginalized groups, they're not going to go into book publishing. If they have a chance to make it in the world, they're going to go into finance and God bless them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as should we of all <laughs> indeed <laughs> um so yeah turning our attention now to the media i know you watched the recent monk debate in toronto uh which i covered and this was a debate about whether to trust the mainstream media featuring matt taibbi and douglas murray facing off against malcolm gladwell and michelle goldberg from the new york times resulted in a landslide victory for taibbi and murray what were your impressions of that debate um, I debates make me very nervous, like even watching them. I kind of I'm a little bit uh, I don't really love the idea. I, th- I feel like the debate form is one of diminishing returns because the idea is to win. And I don't think productive conversations generally come about if people are trying to win. Um, But yeah, in that case, I was just I felt like it was a little bit of a false premise because I feel like there's no way that Malcolm Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg don't know on some level that the media is biased. I mean, I don't think that is a controversial statement. It's always been true. It's just true a little more and in a little bit of a different way than it used to be. So I think that Michelle and Malcolm were were just trying to win the argument. They were sort of doing their job as needed to be done. Um, But yeah, it just felt it kind of the whole thing honestly made me feel really depressed about just the state of the discourse. Like you covered it really well. You were really smart about it, but I don't really, I don't have that much to say about it other than that. I wish that I wish that it could have been like a regular conversation and not a debate, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is what I felt. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, speaking about the kind of elements of trust in the media, you had tweeted out this week, Katie Herzog pointed out this business insider piece. It's covering the Twitter files reporting from Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi. And almost every word in this one paragraph was false. (laughs) I mean, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. And this is not out of the ordinary anymore. Um, Yeah. This is a huge question, but like, what do you think at this point the legacy press would need to do to rebuild just a little bit of the trust that has been lost? Oh, gosh. Uh, Like, fire half of their staff. (laughs) I I mean, what's happening is because I could sit here and say they could they should say, okay, we were wrong. Hey, everybody, here's an editorial letter. You know, we're going to we're going to let you know right now as of the second we're reframing everything and we were wrong and it's a new era. And here we go. Um, that's not going to happen. I mean, what is happening is that there's there are these generational divides within the newsroom. There are a lot of people at senior management levels, senior editorial levels in these organizations that. I can't stand what's going on and they're queasy about it and they're trying to do their jobs the way they have for decades. But we also have these people coming up who genuinely believe that the job of a journalist is to seek, quote unquote, moral clarity, as Mm. as Wesley Lowry put it, or or to, you know, have to, to speak truth to power, hold power to account, that kind of thing. And these are the people who came up who are generally white affluent people who have the luxury of going to liberal arts colleges and going into journalism because as i just said they can afford to do so and they honestly believe that that's the role they they have an activist approach to journalism not all of them there are definitely people you and i know them they gravitate towards people like us there are definitely people who don't see it that way. But unfortunately, the activist class in journalism has been elevated and the people at the higher levels are afraid to stand up to them. And with good reason, because they'll be pushed out, they'll be villainized, they'll lose their jobs. And, you know, I mean, Tara, I don't I'm sure you've seen this, too. It really, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people just trying to hold on to their jobs. Hmm. If you are a middle aged, middle management person with a mortgage and kids in school, you do not want to lose your job because you are not going to get another one. And if that means sort of holding your nose and going along with the culture in the, in the newsroom that you don't believe in, even if it makes you really, really nervous about the state of the discourse, are you going to sacrifice your entire family for that? It's human nature not to. I don't blame people, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the stakes are very high. I mean, they're they're just very high individually, for sure. Yeah. And it's easy for people like us. I mean, like, I don't have kids. You don't have kids. If you, I mean, I don't have a lot of money, but as I've said before, I don't have anybody to drag down with me. So I do speak out about this stuff. You do too. And part of the reason that we can do that is because we're, we're independent, but also we just don't we're not we only have ourselves to hurt that's how i see it you know um and i think that's an important thing to consider frankly i think people need to be more honest about their personal circumstances and how much those allow them to speak or not speak Mm -hmm. yeah 
I, I wanted to also raise, uh, we're speaking in mid-December, uh, one of the big stories has been the Twitter files reporting, as I mentioned. Um, so far, this has been about internal communication around the Hunter Biden laptop story, around shadow banning on Twitter, around the banning of Donald Trump. But the mainstream media initially declared this whole story a nothing burger and accused Taibbi of doing PR work for the richest man in the world. What did you make of the media's reaction to that story? Uh. Well, so Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss are being called conservatives, even right-wingers, right-wing journalists. I mean, it's absurd. I, I don't, you know, if if you're using words like nothing burger, I think that's a tell right there. Like, it's so dismissive. It's so, there's no thought behind it. Um, I mean, is it a nothing burger compared to what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, I don't know. All these things are tied up, of course. I mean, it's look, I'm not particularly interested in Twitter or Elon Musk or any of this stuff. I just personally don't find it that interesting, but it's not a nothing burger. People have been, you know, people's people's tweets have been quashed. People have been censored and it has had real effects. People were not allowed to talk about the pandemic in important, nuanced, our favorite word, ways. <laughs> and that did have serious repercussions. You know, I can tell you, shadow banning has been going on. We know that. This is not, that. that is a nothing burger because we've seen it ourselves. I've been shadow banned many, many, many times. You can see it happening. But I guess, like, so I think we're not surprised, but that doesn't mean it's a nothing burger. I don't know. I'm still trying to, like, parse out how I, I can't I can't yet sort of find myself to be as interested in this story as I should be. Let's mm. put it that way. And mm. I guess I need to do, do the work and figure out why that is internally. But there we have it. <laughs> and I'm curious, too. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the independent press because this series is about independent journalism. You are on Substack. You have two podcasts. Talk to me a little bit about the benefits and the drawbacks of this new model that is emerging. <laughs> well, uh, the benefits are you have a lot of freedom, obviously. You can talk directly to your readers. You don't have to deal with editors uh, choking the life out of you every week. Um, on the other hand, the downside is you don't have to, you don't get the luxury of editors choking the life out of you every week because editors save you from yourself. Right. Mm. I'm a big believer in editing. Um, I, I've had the career that I've had in no small part because I've had absolutely top notch editors helping me. Um, I've had fact checkers and copy editors and I've had people really force me to think things through now. Yes. In the last seven or eight years that was becoming onerous. Some of those editors were making it impossible for me to say what I wanted to say and making me feel like I was crazy and like not smart enough to make the point I was trying to make. And that actually wasn't true. They just didn't want me to make that point. Some of them. Um, so I think the Substack phenomenon is good in that way. However, it really worries me that people are just publishing things. Um, not only do they not have editors to answer to, but their audience is automatically going to agree with them. So there's this audience capture problem. I mean, I sometimes jokingly refer to my readers as my narcissistic supply <laughs> because like they just love me, everything I do. I mean, not not all the time. Certainly I get pushed back and I get people, you know, obviously on Twitter, I get plenty of people yelling at me, but my, my core audience, my podcast listeners, 
they're not going to join the Substack and become paying members and and leave comments on the posts and come to the Zoom hangouts if they're not enthusiastic about the content. Like they're just not going to bother if they don't like it. So you end up only hearing really from the people who like it. And that can be dangerous. That mm. really worries me. So uh, it's what do we do about that? Say. I don't know. Just try to be as self-loathing as possible in order to offset it. <laughs> That's what I advise. Um, I I really don't know. I think we're like at a strange little interlude here because it's kind of exciting. Um, some people are doing really well. It's very much a winner-take-all situation. Some people are doing like astonishingly well, making huge amounts of money on Substack most people are not making any money at all or very, very little. Um, so, you know, we, we, there was a kind of in, in legacy publishing, there was usually a space for people who were like prestige writers who weren't bestsellers or didn't make a ton of money, but that the, the editors or the publishers sort of respected enough. Like it's a feather in our cap to have this person on our list this season. So we're going to publish this book, even though this author is not a bestseller, like this sort of thing. Like there was that kind of space, the people who were respected and maybe won some awards, but never sold a lot of books. I think it's harder and harder for those people to find their way, especially because they also tend to be very bad at, at self promotion and marketing and branding. Mm. So not talking about anybody specifically, of course, <laughs> some people I know very, very well might have this challenge. <laughs> I also wanted to spend a moment on the unspeakeasy, which you founded this year. We met at its inaugural retreat in Vermont. Why did you feel it was important to bring women together in person to talk through these like big thorny issues of our time? Well, I never thought I would be somebody to start a women's community. It's kind of hilarious that I've done this because I've actually been very critical of the kind of commercialization of the quote unquote female sensibility and and all that stuff. Um, but it was a combination of things. Doing the podcast um, for the last two and a half years, I was hearing from a lot of listeners, male and female, just talking about how they felt like they were going crazy. They felt politically homeless. And that podcasts like yours and like mine were really making them feel like they had a place in the world and that they could, you know, that they weren't alone. So I was hearing from those people. I was hearing from women in a particular way when I heard from those people. And I was also teaching writing classes. I've been teaching essay, personal essay and memoir and op-ed writing, both in person and on Zoom for the last several years. Over the last couple of years... I noticed that a lot of people coming to the class, they didn't even necessarily want to write. They just wanted to talk about these issues. They wanted, they were coming to my writing classes because they wanted to talk about the things that I covered on the podcast in a way that they felt safe, that they could have nuanced conversations. They were telling me that like they couldn't talk about it with their friends. They were getting kicked out of their book club for not liking a certain book or recommending another book. They were getting thrown out of Facebook groups, this kind of thing. And it was always women. And I noticed that this kind of cancellation effect was affecting women a little bit differently than men. They were even more reluctant to speak out because of the social penalties were for doing so they were more sensitive to. 
And so I noticed that a lot of the communities around some of these podcasts, like Persuasion, The Fifth Column, these sorts of things. I mean, I love those communities and I've been part of them, but they tended to be very male dominated. And I thought, okay, we women need like a heterodox space. And I started kicking it around and I thought, well, maybe we could meet in person. And yeah, just over time, um, I set up these retreats. I started doing retreats and yeah, you came, we we go out, we go somewhere, we sit around for three or four days. We have guest speakers, we have facilitated discussions that I facilitate and we talk about everything in the most, I have to say, like profoundly honest and intellectually rigorous and curious and vulnerable way that I've ever heard anybody talk about anything. And it's incredibly exciting and it's only going to grow from here. So um, I'm, I'm really, it's something that gives me a lot of joy, I would say. Mm. It was certainly a really powerful experience and I feel like I'm still being fed by it now. So I'm so glad to hear that. I was, you were such an, your contribution was amazing and it was, yeah, people have really said like, I, this changed my life. I know that sounds like, I, I hate to sort of put words in people's mouths, but it has been that way. And how, what does that say about our culture that just sitting around and being able to speak honestly for four days is such a revelation. Mm-hmm. It's so unusual. Like that's what we use. That's what journalism used to be. That's what being an intellectual used to be. That's what it meant to me to be like in circles of people who wrote and had thoughts for a living or even just because that was something they were interested in. And the fact that it's become so rare is just incredibly sad to me. Mm. Me too. I felt like in 2020, one of the big fears that I had was I never realized that the life of the mind could be taken away from you, that the ability to mm. think about the big ideas and discuss them in public and to speak honestly, I, I never occurred to me that that could end. No. And the thing with our retreats and everything with the unspeakeasy, we're going to have an online community launching soon as well. It's all off the record. There is, we never talk about who's there. There is no social media during the days that we're there. There's no tweeting. There's no Instagramming. There's no pictures. Um, I never, we never like, you know, there's no like, you wrote about it in a very discreet way. Like that's, that's fine. But there are people there who frankly, like their jobs would be in jeopardy if they knew they were there, which is Mm -hmm. so absurd because it's not like it's some like secret cabal (laughs) where we're having like dangerous conversations. Um, But I think the off the record nature of it is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not recorded for Zoom. It's not, this is not something that you can go back and watch on the internet. They take place in the here and now um, and people really focus and nobody's looking at their phones ever. And it's really powerful because of that. Mm. And it sort of short circuits the whole, and this is something that you and Louise Perry uh, talked about on your podcast is the idea of cancel culture being girl school culture, being a sort of largely female driven phenomenon. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? That's a really dangerous (laughs) thing too. Yeah. I mean, there is this sort of in-group, out-group dynamic that is really inherent to the, inherent to the female experience. And that, maps on to so-called cancel culture really well. I mean, I, I actually, yeah, Louise talked about it. We talked about it on our retreat. I hadn't, I mean, had you actually like thought, articulated it to yourself that way before? Cause I always thought like, Oh, there's a lot of men on here. 
there's a lot of like men being jerks on Twitter and, you know, shaming other people and dunking on them and that sort of thing. But like the real kind of backstabby, insidious behavior, it's pretty female, is it not? There's some men who do it, but... It It is pretty female. I mean, I, I know I had not articulated that to myself. That had never occurred to me. But what I remember as I was driving to Vermont, listening to you and Louise talk about it and just being mm. like, oh, my God. Yeah, that is that is what it is. I mean, we've all experienced that at different points in our adolescence. And then uh, I've certainly experienced it enough on Twitter. And it, it it is a very female kind of thing. And even the men who practice it, practice it in kind of female influenced yeah. ways, don't they? Yes, because they're really feminist and they're speaking the the female, the feminist language, right? That's what they would say. Um, yeah. And the thing is, it comes from a place of powerlessness, right? Mm. I mean, women do that because they're disempowered in some other way. So behaving like this is really the ultimate sign of a lack of power. And that's what's so... See, this is what also always annoyed me about you know, complaining about mansplaining and and the toxic patriarchy and every single thing a man says must be um, somehow a you know a, this is this is somehow uh, an oppressive force. All you're doing is giving him power that he doesn't already have. It's okay to make fun of men, make blanket statements about them because you're you're punching up, right? That's kind of the the logic of the feminist discourse. Well, to me, that always seemed totally counterproductive because if if you call that punching up, you are therefore saying that men automatically have more power than you do. Most men, at this point in the aggregate, a lot of men have less power than a lot of women. Mm. So by by crapping on men and then calling it punching up, all you're doing is handing them power that they didn't necessarily have before. And I just think that's true with all sort of bad behavior that we see on social media now. You are disempowering yourself every time you do it. And if you if you act that way in the name of having having power and empowering yourself, that actually just ruins everything for everybody. Then nobody knows how to kind of assert themselves in the world in a way that's productive if this is what's presented. So I'm mm. hoping to change that. I mean, that's something that we talk a lot about on our in the unspeakeasy. Mm. And Megan, just lastly, I want to end by speaking briefly about humor because humor obviously appears in your work a lot, obviously in this conversation. And uh, we have been living through a pretty humorless time. You know, on the one hand, the mainstream, uh, it's very difficult to joke about anything, but in the spaces that we are in, there's also a huge sort of amount of material for satire. Um, <laughs> yes. Talk to me a little bit about the humor of, of this sort of predicament that we're all in right now. Well, everything is back channeled, right? I think this is true, not just of humor, but of insight itself. Like, again, this is why the independent media is seeing such a rise is because people are ravenous for people speaking honestly about anything. So humor is a way of shedding light on things in a way that sort of takes the edge off of them or like makes them sort of less scary. By by making a joke out of something, you can kind of handle it a little bit better. But the the problem is, is that the humor, it's never like in the 
my God. Remember when the shouts and murmurs used to be funny? Like, or, like, <laughs> yes. or the onion? Yeah. yeah. I mean, seriously, the onion, the Babylon Bee is, is actually the funniest, is the best humor publication, I think, currently. And that's a Christian pub. That's a Christian humor magazine. Okay. The Babylon <laughs> Bee. And it's brilliant. <laughs> it is that, pretty funny. Can you believe that we're saying that? No. Um, uh, so I think the problem with this, like, Humor is taking place on private text threads. It's taking place on WhatsApp groups. It's all behind the scenes. Like, I don't know about you, but I have several text threads with various different groups of friends or groups of people, sometimes like random groups. And it'll just be like this constant stream of jokes and stuff that nobody could say publicly. If you took screenshots of some of these text threads, oh my gosh. Um, And even when you go into the comedy clubs, if you go to a comedy club that's, you know, an actual club, like on any given weeknight, that stuff is really funny. And they will confiscate your phone at the door and and hand it back to you when you're on your way out. And that's where the material is being worked on. And that's where comics are doing the things that they've always done. And actually, I would say to anybody, if you are feeling despondent about what's happened to humor, don't turn on the TV, don't go on the internet, go down and go, go to a comedy club sit there stay there till at least like 10 or 11 at night have a couple <laughs> drinks and listen to these comics and they're not all going to be great they're some of them might be offensive but you will feel like maybe the world can write itself maybe we maybe we will eventually get back on track because some people are still out there doing what they always did mm-hmm and Megan, this is the last podcast of 2022. Looking ahead to 2023, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic or both? Um, I am feeling, I would say, mostly optimistic. I would say I'm like I'm thinking, I haven't thought. I would say I'm maybe like 60 to 70 percent optimistic. the 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 door is cracking open. People are tired of this. I can, you know this, because look how large your subscriber base is. I cannot tell you how many people have reached out to me about all sorts of things. The mailing list for the unspeakeasy is enormous. The amount of interest, the people, the women who want to come on our retreats, the men who say, why don't you let men in to these retreats, which we may do someday. The unspeakeasy may expand. We're always going to have these retreats for women. They're small, by the way. We, I don't want to I don't want to go beyond 15 people. I mean, they're small, intimate gatherings. Just the fact that we have so many people dying to have these conversations in good faith and really just tired of pretending. I think that's what I'm seeing. So I am optimistic. I think it's going to take a little bit of time to undo ourselves from this um, because it didn't happen overnight and it's not going to write itself overnight, but it's not a sustainable situation. I mean, I, I have more faith in my fellow humans than what we're seeing now. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Well, faith in fellow humans. That is the perfect note to end on today. (laughs) I love your work, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Tara, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Hold up. 